All right, guys, welcome to Salt City. My name's Drew. For those of you who don't know me, it's great to have you guys. Happy New Year. Welcome back to church. It's great to be here with you this morning. Hope you guys have had a great time off work and enjoyed some relaxation. One of the things that um, my family and I did was went and saw the movie Frozen 2. I don't know if you've seen it yet. But, you know, I went being a good dad to three daughters and, and thought, I'll, I'll suffer through this. But then I actually got pretty excited as the movie started. There's this scene where Olaf, he's this uh, little snowman-type creature, and uh, he asks a philo- philosophical question. And I was like, I'm going to like this movie with this setup. And so he, this is the question that Olaf asks at the beginning of the movie. He says, do you ever worry about the notion that nothing is permanent? I'm like, wow, deep question for the movie Frozen 2. How are they going to answer this question? And, of course, the response is for Anna, one of the main characters, to sing a song called Some Things Never Change. And it's actually a really ironic song because, for example, in the song, she says, like an old stone that will never fall. And then a stone immediately falls off this wall. And basically... The movie is this search for something that will never change. And so they're assuring each other throughout the movie that love will last forever and that the place that they call home will last forever. And, and there's this um, idea even that, that people won't die. But you're sort of left at the end of the movie like, what's the basis for all of this? At least I was. Most people just enjoyed the movie, right? And... Um, and, and really, it leaves you in this place of longing, as all good fairy tales do. But what we're going to see this morning is sort of how, how those fairy tales point us to a deep truth about what our hearts were made to be satisfied in. And what we're going to argue this morning is that our hearts were made to be satisfied in the presence of God forever. And according to his word, God will be with us forever. And so we're going to look at three implications of that. We've been kind of taking this tour through the Bible and seeing this reality that God has always been with his people. And our great hope as the people of God is that God will be with us forever. So we're looking at Revelation Chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So the first implication we see in the text is that with God by our side forever, we will have a place to call home. So look at verse 1 again. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Okay, so just to give you a little background on this passage, this is a revelation in the sense that it's a vision of the future that Jesus communicates to his friend John, and then John writes down. So this isn't a wish or a pipe dream, but it's a revelation of what will, what is certain to happen in the future. And so what John says he sees in the future is a new heaven and a new earth. Now, normally when we think of heaven, we think of some ethereal place, an invisible place, but when he uses the word heaven here, he's talking about new heavens, what we would refer to as the universe. So he's talking about the stars and the sky and the clouds. And so what John is seeing is the earth remade, the world that we see remade, which immediately is a little bit disconcerting to us because he says that the earth that we know now and the heavens that we know now have passed away. And there's a lot of us who don't like change. This is a big change. Earth, the heavens, the universe, everything that we know it as it is, is gone. And so we ask, in what sense is the new earth and the new heavens like this earth, and in what sense is it different? And we actually get our answer to that in this text from sort of a phrase that's not immediately obvious as to its meaning. And that's this little phrase at the end where he says, and the sea was no more. Now, this is bad news on the surface for those of us who live in the land of 10,000 lakes. We're like, no fishing, no swimming, no ice skating on a huge body of water. For those who grew up next to the ocean, you're thinking, wait, there's no surfing, there's no beautiful sunsets over the ocean. In what sense is he saying that the sea was no more. I don't think that he's saying that the sea is no more in the sense that there's no large, round bodies of water. What he's actually saying is something that you would have understood if you were living in that context. Because for them, the sea was a place that was threatening, that was sort of ominous, Because in the land of Israel, the thunderstorms and the the storms that would threaten their crops and would threaten their livelihood and, and could even, with strong winds, blow over their homes came from the direction of the sea. And in addition to that, the main enemies of the people of Israel came from the sea. So we're talking about the Philistines, the Babylonians, and and in the current context that John's writing in, the Romans. And so the sea to them represented everything threatening that could take away the place that they called home. So for us, that's not the sea. We, we generally have happy memories of the sea. For me, one of those things that has, has maybe represented those features has been tornadoes. I remember from, from the time I was a little kid growing up in Indiana, just having this like 
gut check whenever I heard about tornadoes because there were often weather reports of tornadoes coming through. And this sort of all came to a head when I was in about the third grade. There was a tornado, large tornado, that struck close to our house, about a mile from our house. And it it hit even closer to home when I learned the next day that the the sister of a kid in my sister Anna's second grade class had died as a result of the tornado. She was actually in sixth grade, and she was laying on top of her little brother as this tornado came through and and ripped apart their house, and pieces of the, the house fell on her, and she died. And so my sister, who goes to church here, would tell you that her brother, BJ, would be sitting in this like teepee that was kind of constructed in the middle of their second grade classroom to read in, and he would just be allowed throughout the rest of the school year just to sit in that teepee and cry. And so for me, the tornadoes from that point on, I remember just laying in my bed and thinking about tornadoes and it, it being very real to me that a tornado had the ability to take away from me everything that I loved. The people that I loved, the house that I was familiar with. And if we really begin to think about it, we realize that there are many things that can threaten our security and our ability to call this world home. And so what God is saying to us through his servant, John, is that this is not home. The sea is still here. There's still racism. There's poverty. There's terrorism. There's natural disasters. And we've gotten so used to hearing about these things that we repress them and sort of block them off. And we sort of think those things are never going to happen to me. But when we really analyze it, we know that some threat, some disease, some affliction, our old age, something is going to take away everything that we love about this place. And so we need to hear this morning, that there is a hope beyond this reality. There is a place where the sea is no more. There's no more threats. There's no more worry. There's no more anxiety about what is going to happen next. There is only a hopeful future. And that is because God is fully present in that place. That place is untainted by the sin and the brokenness that we experience every single day. And the news keeps getting better as we read the text, guys. God's presence doesn't just bring a place to call home. It also brings us love that lasts. Verses two and three, check this out. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So we go from this place, this new heaven, and this new earth, this beautiful place where there's no threats to a wedding. You guys see that? What happens is there's this this new place that John sees, this new heaven and this new earth, and immediately sort of looks up into the heavens, into the sky, and he sees a bride, a holy city. Not a city in the sense of, of buildings, but a city in the sense of a people. And that people is dressed in the most beautiful wedding dress that you've ever seen. Pure as white. She is a holy bride. And that's why he says that she's coming down out of heaven. He he wants to invoke this picture of a bride walking down the aisle to her husband. And the husband is God. And God is waiting on the earth for his bride to come out of the heavens. And here's what he's saying. I want to live with my people with such intimacy and with such closeness that the only comparable relationship that is in your mind is the best marriage that you can possibly think of. It's the intimacy that is enjoyed by a married couple that have spent 60 years hand in hand together. God wants that type of relationship with you. So much so that everything in your present life, if you are a follower of Christ, is actually preparing you for that day. But part of the reason that we miss out on that is because we falsely put our hope too much in the relationships that we have here. And the best of our relationships are the ones that we're most likely to place our hopes in. I remember making the mistake as a young pastor when I was doing, I think, one of my first two or three weddings. I made the mistake of letting the couple who was getting married write their own vows. And now whenever I I marry somebody, I always tell them, you can't write your own vows because what you'll probably do is you won't write vows you'll write really unrealistic things to each other. You'll write, you'll write love poetry. At least that's what this couple did. And so I just remember standing there and these people are reading love poetry to each other instead of saying vows. I'm just like, oh no. You know, I'm just glad people can't read your thoughts sometimes, especially as a pastor, right? And um, so, so I'm hearing them just, just with this love poetry and, I, and I'm thinking, no, no, we need to say vows. And one of the the vows that I always want people to say is for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, and then the last part, until death do us part. Why do I want them to say until death do us part? Because it's a frank acknowledgement that this arrangement is temporary. I'm not talking about divorce. I'm talking about death. 
The person that you are married to, you will not always be married to. There is an ominous threat on the future horizon, and that threat is called death. The relationship as you know it will end. And that's because the whole biblical picture is that the relationship of marriage, even the best possible marriage, is a shadow. It's a shadow. It's actually to point us to a much greater, long-lasting, beautiful, glorious reality. It's to picture for us the relationship that we will forever enjoy with Jesus. Look at Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. It'll be on the screens. Here's the picture of marriage from a biblical perspective. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. It's as if marriage is like this short book that nobody read that is making a reference to a substantial work that everyone has read. It's just a reference. It's to point us to this great reality. What the Bible's saying is, oh, you think it'd be great to, to be married, or you think that your marriage is great, or you think your marriage is terrible, and you wish you would have never married this person. It's saying, just wait. This is meant to prepare you for this great reality that God is going to dwell with his people on a new earth with new heavens And he is going to treat his people with such tenderness, love, and affection that all marriage will pale in comparison to that. And in your vows to God, you will never say until death do us part. Because it's forever. You never have to say Goodbye. Nothing can ever end that union because this place is temporary and that place is eternal. But the text keeps on going. And what John wants to show us is what the nature of that relationship will be. In other words, he wants to show us the tenderness of Jesus and the fact that in relationship with him, there will be no more tears. Look at this. Look how tender our Savior is. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Okay, can you imagine this? It says that Jesus will wipe away the tears from their eyes. So you imagine this multitude of people that no one can count. And everybody is crying. 
And Jesus just goes and tenderly with his nail-pierced hands, one by one, will wipe away the tears from your eyes. As if to say, there's no longer any need to cry because you're in my presence forever. Now, people have the ability to wipe away tears from our eyes, to comfort us. I just am finishing reading this biography on Abraham Lincoln, and and I didn't know this about his wife, Mary. She was widely criticized in the press during her life and and was um, known to be kind of uh, incorrigible. And anyway, she... What, what I didn't know about her is that she would kind of sneak off at, at different times and would visit Union soldiers in the hospital. And they wouldn't know that it was her. And so these guys, you know, they've gotten their, their uh, legs amputated with no modern medicine. And so they're in a tremendous amount of pain. And she would sort of go incognito and she would sit next to their beds and she would offer to write letters home to their parents. And she would do this week after week after week. And she was being widely criticized in the press. And she let no one know that she was doing this, even though this would have totally made her reputation amazing in the community. But she just wanted to do this to bring some comfort to these men. In many cases, they didn't even know it was her until they got a letter back from their mom. And they're like, you met the first lady? And these guys are like, I didn't know that. But she signed it, Mary Lincoln, you know, to the the family. So they were excited. But anyway, so, so people have this incredible ability to bring comfort. But here's what Mary Lincoln, here's what we cannot do for each other. We might be able to wipe away the tears. But this is what makes Jesus the ultimate comforter, is that he only has to do it once. He wipes away the tears, and there's no more Tears. There's a banner over the entrance of heaven that says, No more tears in this place. Why? Because there's no more death. There's no crying. There's no mourning. There's no more pain. In other words, there's no more tears because Jesus is there fully present. The place is perfect, and there's absolutely nothing to cry about. Can you imagine being in a place where there's nothing to cry about? There's a lot to cry about here. And if we begin to think about the reality of the suffering around us, and we watch too much news, we'll be continually depressed and crying. But in that place, there's nothing to cry about. How can this be? How can we have assurance that this place exists? Think about the one who's giving the revelation. We're talking about Jesus. And this is what scripture says about Jesus. Hebrews 2 verse 9. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death 
for everyone. Here's how you can know that Jesus will wipe away your tears and that death will be done away with forever because Jesus became a human being. He experienced the tears. He experienced the mourning. He experienced the pain. He walked in our shoes all the way to the cross. And he tasted death for you. In other words, the reason that this is a place of mourning is because this is a place that has been infected and effective in every nook and cranny by this disease called sin. And what Jesus did is he took our sin on himself so that we get grace. And so if you're struggling right now with looking at yourself, looking at the brokenness of the world, looking at the brokenness of your own sin, if you're just discouraged, I'd encourage you to look up with me and see Jesus and hear him say, this is not the way that it's supposed to be. And this is not the way that it always will be. Just wait. I'm making all things new. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, you are our invincible leader. We just want to um, acknowledge that you are here present with us and that you've spoken this word to us. And we want to say we long for this place, for this new heaven and this new earth. We long to be pure in heart. We long to be in this intimate marriage-like relationship with you forever. We long for our tears to be wiped away. We long to be in a place where there's no death or crying or pain anymore. God, would you lift our eyes so that in the midst of this place of death and crying and pain, we could shine like lights in the world and that we could point the people around us to the hope that we have in you, a hope that this city desperately needs. In Jesus' name, amen.